So this is the second of our talks uh, today. We're thinking of uh, standing as Christians. And what I'd like to do this afternoon is to use the passage that was read to us and call our time the example to stand when threatened. The example to stand when threatened. Of course, threats are something that we're used to hearing about and reading about. So if you go to the official security service website, you can read about threat levels. This is the threat level that is in the UK at the present time. It's severe. That is threats from terrorists and on that basis we see armed police. Uh, we see armed police in railway stations, in airports, um, in shopping malls. You could even see them this year at Bible conventions because the Keswick Convention had armed police around the Keswick Convention um, and other conventions now will have armed police because of the threat against citizens, but also against Christians. You can read newspaper headlines on a pretty much daily basis. This is this week um, from, a, uh, a new, uh, from a, The Economist, an imminent threat to the unity of Spain. This is about the Catalonia issue and the succession potentially of independence for Catalonia. There are threats that we read about from computer hackers. So this was an example in the paper. Thousands of Virgin Media customers advised to change their passwords immediately due to a hack threat. So threats come in very different guises. Here's another one. This is climate change. Climate change disaster is the biggest threat to the global economy in 2016, say experts. Threats in all these different forms. Here's another one. This is health threats. This, is, this week, the World Health Organization said antibiotic resistance is one of the biggest threats to global health food security and development today. That was just published on Wednesday of this past week. So as citizens of the nation, we are not immune to any of these threats. Um, we're citizens who live in the United Kingdom and these are threats to those of us who live in the United Kingdom. But as Christians, we also need to be aware of other threats to which we have to really give serious consideration. That is threats relating to our faith. The fact that we acknowledge Jesus Christ to be the only way, there are threats to those of us who believe, and we have to recognize that. And what I want us to do is be encouraged by the example that we find in Acts chapter 4 of someone who stood against threats. We read about it, and we're going to consider it uh, in this session. 
I decided to do a narrative this afternoon because I thought it might be easier at the end of an afternoon when everyone's uh, um, ability to concentrate is probably beginning to sink and we're beginning to you know, think about our tea time or whatever. And so the narrative, I hope, will be able to take us through and yet we'll be able to learn from it and get some application from it. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, but in reality, we have to start the narrative in Acts chapter 3. Now, don't worry if you, you don't follow this. We're going to go through it pretty quickly. If you know the narrative, and many of you will know these chapters well, then please just take what God is going to say to us from this narrative be encouraged by it and make resolution that we think from this passage that God is saying to us the threats that we face, others have faced as well. So Acts chapter 3, we read first of all about a miracle. <clears throat> now everyone knew the lame man who was by the beautiful gate in Jerusalem. You know, he was there every day. So people knew the lame man. He begged for small amounts of money. He had his basket. He was sat there, and people would probably just pass him by, and occasionally someone would drop a coin into the, the bag for this man. And then Peter and John come. You remember the narrative back in the early part of Acts chapter 3. Peter and John come, and Peter says, we don't have any silver or gold, but what we do have, we're going to give to you. I don't know what the man thought when Peter said that. And then he said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, <clears throat> I was thinking about this and thinking of Graham. Now, I don't know how it made me think of Graham, but I was thinking about Graham learning to walk, right? I can't remember exactly how old he was, but I can remember him taking his first feeble steps to one of the young people who was then in Belvedere Road called Kenny Watkins. And Graham took these feeble steps, falling over, getting back up, and Kenny Watkins was, was in a chair saying, come, and sort of holding out a hand. And he took a few steps, stumbled and took a step. But he had to learn to walk. Now, you remember children, all of you, we all had to learn to walk. Not one of us just walked. It's an amazing thing. Don't miss it. This man who'd never walked for 40 years, we're told, immediately got up on his feet and walked. What a miracle. He didn't learn to walk. He just walked. Showing the power of God through Peter and John. And we read that people are absolutely amazed at what has taken place. And on their faces, Peter could read, how did this happen? And so with the opportunity to tell them how it had happened, we go from the miracle to a sermon. Because Peter, to this crowd of amazed people who are just looking, how did that happen? Peter gives a sermon, and we see the sermon in chapter 3, verse 12, right through 
to the beginning of chapter 4. And what we find in this sermon is Peter is saying, it's not us. We haven't done this by our power. We're not some superhumans. This is God's power, which has raised this man to be able to walk. God's power, the God that you say you believe in, he talks about, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, you Jews, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, but the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came into the world, Jesus, God incarnate, who you delivered, you denied, you crucified, it's in him. It's through him that this man has been raised to be able to walk. Now, one of the things that maybe you'd like to do during the next few hours of the day is when you read Acts 3 and 4, find out how many times the phrase, his name, appears. The little phrase, his name, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, it appears time and time again through this passage. Verse 16 of chapter 3, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong and be able to walk. And so Peter gives the sermon. We, can't, we haven't got time to go into it. There's more to the sermon than that. But you can see the outline of this sermon, can't you? What he's saying, not us. We don't have the power. The power is through Christ. Jesus, who you crucified, who God sent, the God that you say you believe in, he sent him, you crucified him, God raised him from the, the grave, and it's through his name, through his power, that this miracle has been done. And then as we come to chapter 4, and we see the beginning of the reading that we had, we find that as... Peter is speaking to all the people, there are others listening. Who are they? The priests, captain of the temple, the Sadducees, the religious people who are standing around criticizing, they always did, criticizing what has happened, particularly the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, verse 2 of chapter 4 they were greatly disturbed that Peter and John were teaching about the resurrection from the dead. Okay? So here's Peter teaching about the resurrection. The Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection, are greatly disturbed. And so we go from the narrative of the miracle and the sermon to the third thing, which is the arrest. Because in verse 3 of chapter 4, they, the religious people, laid hands on Peter and John, put them in custody until the next day because it was already evening. So they're arrested. So here we have the arrest of Peter and John. Now, I don't want you to miss something else in this passage, which is in that beginning of narrative about the arrest, we get verse 4. Isn't verse 4 interesting? However, many of those who heard the word believed. 
So here are Peter and John. They're being arrested. And even in this time of arrest, there are some who are beginning to believe. And the numbers are incredible. Now, we were talking this morning about the word of God running. This is the word of God running. Okay? In Acts chapter 1 and verse 20, sorry, verse 15, we know of only 120 believers in Jerusalem. Now, there may have been more, but it specifically talks about 120. When you come to Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost, how many are converted? 3,000 plus. That's at least 3,120 in Acts chapter 2. You come to Acts chapter 4, what does it tell us in this verse? It tells us that the number of men who believe is about 5,000. So if there were an equivalent number of women and children, you're talking about 15,000 maybe, 120, Acts 2, Acts 1, 3,120, Acts 2, 5,000 or 10,000 or even more by the time you get to Acts chapter 4. By the time you get to Acts chapter 5, stop counting. It's multitudes. That's the word that keeps coming up. Multitudes believe. And so you have this verse in the arrest section, but I don't think we should miss it. So what happens when they're arrested? Well, we, the narrative gave it to us, didn't it? On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas. Where did you last meet Annas and Caiaphas? In the trial of Jesus. So here are Annas and Caiaphas again in the trial of Peter and John. What did Annas and Caiaphas have to do in terms of, of the Lord Jesus Christ? They sent him to be crucified. What is going to happen to Peter and John? Well, it's Annas and Caiaphas again. And there was Alexander and many others as well. And they set Peter and John in the trial room. So you've got to have this picture of Peter and John in the trial room before this august body. What happens? By what power... By what name have you done this? It's exactly the same question being addressed. How have you done this? And Peter doesn't miss an opportunity. Now, just imagine in university next week, or in work, or your neighbours come to the door, and they say to you, we see you've been away on a weekend it was a Christian weekend, was it? Tell me about the Jesus that you worshipped on your weekend away. Just imagine that happening in university or school or college or wherever, or work. Tell us about Jesus, because that's exactly what they said to Peter. Tell us about Jesus. Tell us about the name, the power by which you've done this. So what does Peter do? gives them the sermon. <laughs> you know, he's been asked to give a sermon and he gives this message. Exactly the same message now before the court as he gave to the crowd outside the court. What is his message? Let it be known to you, he says in verse 10. All the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, but who God raised from the dead, 
that this man stands before you completely healed. And then he goes on to this incredible verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So here he's turning it from the healing of the man who's become whole and is able to walk to salvation, to the making whole of the person, not just physically but spiritually, because we need to be made whole spiritually. And so Peter says there's no salvation in any other name other than the name of Jesus. Now again, don't miss the boldness of Peter. It's only a few weeks since he stood at the back of a courtroom denying Jesus. When a girl comes up to him and says, are you a Christian? Are you with Christ? And Peter denies it three times. He couldn't even bring himself to say that he knew Christ. And now he's standing in a courtroom and he's giving the full gospel message to this courtroom. There's no salvation outside of Christ. What a transformation. What brought it about? The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the fact that after the resurrection, Peter met the Lord and the Lord who had called Peter dealt with failures, a failure like Peter, and simply said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Three times, do you love me? And called Peter to the great task of proclaiming the word of God. And so we can see the miracle. We can see the sermon. We can see the arrest and another sermon. And then we come to number four we can see that there are threats. Now the sermon which you can go into, and I've not gone through all the details of the sermon, which Peter preached again to the court, but something comes across to the court because in verse 13, they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men, and they marveled at the way that they spoke before the court. And they couldn't deny that this man had been healed. There was no denial. The man had been healed. So what are they going to do? Verse 16, what shall we do to Peter and John? There's no denying a notable miracle has been done. It's evident to everybody. No one can deny it. But we don't want this thing to spread. We don't want this message of Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead who has power to work in people's lives. We don't want that message. So what do they do? Verse 17, they severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they command them not to speak at all in the name of Jesus. Don't you love verse 19, Peter and John before the court answer and say, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. 
For we cannot but speak in the name and speak of the things which we have seen and heard. And the boldness of Peter to proclaim that we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. So what do they do? They threaten them again, verse 21, and then they let them go. The same Annas and Caiaphas who had condemned the Lord Jesus Christ to crucifixion now let Peter go. So we come to our fifth point. A miracle, a sermon, an arrest, and threats. And number five, a prayer meeting. Verses 23 to 31. I would actually call this a remarkable prayer meeting. I don't know if any of you can remember remarkable prayer meetings. Maybe some of us can remember unremarkable prayer meetings. But this is a remarkable prayer meeting. I was trying to think, looking back, of some of the remarkable prayer meetings I've been in. I can remember in 1981 when the Toxteth riots were in full force of being in Belvedere Road Church. And there was a prayer meeting going on within the church and there were hundreds of police marching down from Admiral Street Police Station along Devonshire Road to Prince's Gates and then to go into Toxteth. Hundreds of police. And we had prayer times not only to pray for the work of the church, but to pray for the region, Toxteth, and the things that were happening during that time. And that was a remarkable prayer meeting. I was thinking yesterday, I had to go to um, Birmingham, to Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham, because this week, or the last couple of weeks, they've been celebrating 5,000 liver transplants having been done in Birmingham in the last 30 years. And thinking about uh, a former member of Belvedere Road Church, Joan Williams, who had a liver transplant in Birmingham, and her surgeon was a Christian, a man called Elwin Elias, who happened um, to come out of retirement and speak to the, the meeting um, in the last couple of days. But thinking about some of the prayer meetings that we had to pray to God, for Joan um, when she was so, so seriously ill. She had her liver transplant and eventually after some time um, it was rejected and Joan passed away. But they were remarkable prayer meetings. This is a remarkable prayer meeting that we read of in Acts chapter 4 verse 23. If ever you're in doubt about prayer and I don't know what to pray for, Use this passage as a way to get into prayer. It's a remarkable passage which shows to us the, the way that the disciples came together. Because being let go, verse 23, they went to their own companions, reported what the chief priests had said, and when they all heard what the chief priests had said, they raised their voices to God with one accord. How do they pray? Three points come through this prayer. Number one, they pray to the God of creation. Verse 24. Look what it says. Lord, you are God. You are God who made the heaven and earth and the sea. Not them. They didn't do it. This isn't a man thing. You, Lord, made this. We're coming to you. 
We're coming to you, Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. Where else can we ultimately go but to you? God of creation. But secondly, God of revelation. Because you have spoken, Lord, who by the mouth of your servant David have said. And then in their prayer they quote Psalm number two. Why do the nations rage and people plot vain things? Kings of the earth taking their stand, rulers gathering together. That had an immediate context for David. But he's looking down the corridors of time and seeing this very event. How leaders and kings were plotting. Plotting even against Peter and John. And so they're praying to the God of revelation. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, they've gathered together against Christ to do whatever your hand actually and your purpose determined. God of creation, God of revelation, and then God of power. God of power. We're coming to you, Lord, and we're praying, verse 30, that you would stretch out your hand, that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And in this prayer, as they come to the God of creation, who else can they come to? The God of revelation who has spoken, and the God of power. And just by an aside, if anyone is not a Christian listening to this I want you to know that we're in the presence of the God of creation just look outside it didn't just happen we're in the presence of the God of revelation he revealed himself in creation but he's revealed himself in the Bible true truth and the God of power who works in people's lives and is still working and can work to change lives even over this weekend. And in this prayer they're saying, verse 29, Lord, look on the threats. We've been threatened. We've been threatened not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. Please grant us boldness to speak. Stretch out your hand. May we be given boldness so that we may speak your word. And verse 31, when they had prayed, when they had prayed, it's not a long prayer, is it? It's when they had prayed. The place where they were assembled was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And you just have to read through the rest of the Acts of the Apostles and see the boldness of Peter and John. Well, those five points bring us to number six, which is the application. And the threats, we as Christians, we have to consider our threats. What are the threats we as Christians face? Besides all the threats we started off at the beginning of this talk, 
Do you not think that we are also under threat not to speak in the name of Jesus? That threat is evident. That threat is present in schools. It is present in the media. It is present in many different parts of our society. Speak about religion, generally. Or speak about the fact that if there is a God, there are many different ways to God. But do not speak in the name of Jesus saying that there is only one way, that there is salvation in no other name besides the Lord Jesus Christ. I referred to Keswick before at Keswick this year in the Keswick lecture, which was given by Dr. Peter Williams, who's principal of Tyndale College in Cambridge. And it was a lecture entitled, Do We Really Need to Defend the Bible? And he said this, that by the age of seven... The majority of children in our schools know that the Bible is not true. They know that the Bible is not true. Because they've been told that in home, at home, they've been told it from the media and from school, that it's all evolution, not creation. That the Bible is just another book, that it's got stories in it, that you can believe some bits if you want, but it's not true truth. And that all roads lead to God. A couple of months ago, there was um, some correspondence in the Guardian newspaper on the subject of is there room in a modern newspaper for traditional views on social issues? Can our modern newspapers talk about social issues where people have what they term traditional views? And it was an article about the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party in uh, Northern Ireland, and in relation to their link to the Conservative Party. And one writer in the Guardian newspaper, and it was a full page, talked about this. He said, traditional is a cuddly word that is used to soften the concepts of prejudice and discrimination. It is not traditional to believe that same-sex people shouldn't be allowed to get married. It's homophobic. It isn't traditional to believe that women should be made to give birth to babies they don't want. It's sexist. Therefore, there is no place for such views in any modern newspaper. Replying to that, John Benton, editor of Evangelicals Now, wrote a commentary and said this, if you take that view to its logical conclusion, there is no place for a Bible-believing church in the modern world, if you take that view to its logical conclusion. And that is the threat that we face, and we have to be aware of this threat, from a hostile media to Christians, hostile politicians to Christians, and hostile education to Christians. That is reality. We're living in a cloud cuckoo land if we don't acknowledge that fact. That is the threat. Now, there's also threats that we need to recognize from inside the church. What do I mean by that? Well, if you read Revelation and the seven letters to the churches in Revelation, and you see the emphasis in each of those letters about the threat of false teaching, 
the threat of dead formalism. Churches just going through a formula, but having no reality and passion. Of spiritual hypocrisy. Of lukewarmness. Of division. All of those things can be threats coming from within the church. Threats without and threats within. And one of the biggest threats we face, I believe, in evangelical churches is the dumbing down and confidence in the word of God. Actually having everything else in our services, but the centrality of the Bible and the declaration that God has spoken in his word. Now, with those sort of threats, and I was, I was thinking about opening it up, but our time, I guess, is nearly gone, in terms of what other threats do people think we face as Christians? What are the threats? What do you face as a Christian? What do you see as the biggest threat to your faith? Something we need to discuss, and maybe over dinner we can discuss that. We're not able to stand by ourselves against these threats. We're not. We are not able to stand. Which is why I didn't know that song, that hymn we sang before, He will hold us fast. We can't hold ourselves. We have to believe that the God of creation and revelation and power is the God who will hold us fast. He will hold us fast. And we must be those who raise our voices and learn from this passage. You say Peter's an apostle. Yes, he is. But it's here for our learning, all of us. However old we are, however long we've been a Christian, we need to be those people who will pray for the boldness. And it comes back to what we were saying this morning about the importance of praying for each other. You see, where did Peter go when threatened? He went to the prayer meeting. And they prayed together. And we need to see again the importance of prayer and to plead before God, Lord, consider the threats to our children, our grandchildren, gospel freedom in our nation, the cause of the gospel going forward. Lord, consider the threats and may we go forward praying for boldness that we will be able to stand firm against all those things that are in our nation and in our society today. That we will, in the words of the hymn, stand as children of the promise stand as children of the promise and fix our eyes on him well may the lord help us to stand and having done all to stand i'm hoping again as i said last night that this will open up in your minds whole areas from the bible it would be great if we could have some discussion at some point maybe over a meal in, in, around our tables. Um, other passages in the Bible which really do exhort us to stand. Ephesians 6, for example, put on the whole armour of God to stand. Other parts of the Bible. What examples would you want to put? If somebody says, what's the best example? Would it be Daniel? 
Daniel had to stand against all the opposition. Just make a list of the opposition people faced, and yet they stood for God. And then let us pray that we might be those people who stand as the children of the promise.